Today, the Old Testament reading from which the sermon will derive uh, is Daniel chapter 1, the entirety of that chapter. It's been a while since you read Daniel. It occurs right after Ezekiel in our Bibles, so you'll find it there. Um, I don't know what the Pew Bible page number is, but you can find it there after Ezekiel, or you can just listen to this familiar story. I'll read from the ESV. This is God's word. Please give careful attention to it. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths, without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and the tribe of Judah, of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner, and he tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. A high school speaker once opened up a ceremony at the school 
with the following story. It's a horror story. Uh, it's not a fictional horror story. It's a real horror story. Hundreds of years ago, you see the practice of molding men began. Practitioners would take a child of only two to three years old, and they would put him inside a porcelain vase with just his head and his feet protruding. The rest of the child would remain inside this vase, and the vase was often a strange shape. And as the years rolled on, the child's body would actually conform to the gross te- grotesque shape of the vase, and all this was done for the amusement of perverse noblemen. At the age of 10 to 12 years old, after the child's body had developed into a misshapen monster, they would crack and break the vase, and out would emerge this poor, deformed child. Well, the world is in the business of pressuring God's people into misshapen monsters as well. The tools uh, to do so are not so often porcelain Chinese vases. The world attempts to create monsters by twisting, perverting, misinforming, and putting unbearable and unrelenting pressure on God's people, both their heads and their hearts. The world seeks to make each of us assume its own inhuman shape. Well, this morning we'll begin a series on Daniel, specifically chapters 1 through 5, during the pastor's sabbatical in the morning. And chapter 1 begins as a kind of prologue to what follows in Daniel 1 and the rest of Daniel. It's hard for us to realize, though, the true feeling, with true feeling, how difficult it was for these Israelites to find themselves in a position of exile. Exile was a jarring dislocation. And the question that it poses is, or was, is God still present with his people in a situation of exile? I suppose if we were in Ukraine this morning, this text might have more traction. After all, the aggressive war launched by Putin, and those words are chosen deliberately, has caused the largest displacement crisis in Europe since World War II. By the end of May, 8.2 million refugees have found themselves in a pilgrimage to a new home. So what does the Holy Spirit intend for us to grasp from this prologue, which frames and introduces these wonderful and memorable stories that will be before us in the next month? It is into exile that we must plunge in order to understand the profound and sublime chapters set before us. For as Thomas Cahill says in his book, The Gifts of the Jews, how a tribe of desert nomads changed the way everyone thinks and feels, quote, the lightning of the prophets and the trauma of the exile must be absorbed. So we'll see in the text uh, before us this morning that it teaches us because of their faith, these exiles, four of them that are mentioned this morning, uh, and the fact that God is sovereign and in his control over all in uh, circumstances inside and outside of Israel, they can, quote-unquote, manage their situation and actually recognize their higher status in the kingdom above, even though they find themselves currently in a foreign land under a foreign king, subjugated by a foreign court. But God is still with Israel, even in exile. So I've chosen three E's, 
the best an Old Testament prof can do. Uh, exile, echoes, and extradition. So we want to look at exile first. Uh, Daniel 1, 1 to 2 begins with locating the events in the reign of Jehoiakim, as we've read. But this information quickly recedes into the background. In the foreground, almost immediately, the dreaded Nebuchadnezzar comes on the scene. He was the son of Nabopolassar, who in 625 B.C. founded the Neo-Babylonian kingdom, and then his son, Nebuchadnezzar, ascended to the throne in 625 and in the same year conquered Jerusalem. Let me repeat again, it's hard for us to appreciate the exilic mindset of the Jews. Think, though, for a moment. Just slow down and think. The land of Israel had promised to the Hebrews along with the promises of a king, and along with a promise that they would be alone the apple of his eye, the elect people of God. They would be endowed with a country that would be their own. They would be endowed with a king who would protect them, a monarchy. But now they find themselves outside the land, no longer turfed in the land to which they were promised. They did not have a king to protect them, They were forcibly expelled from their home, their own land. But what's striking about these Israelites, these deported youth, is that to some degree, they actually assimilate themselves to the culture, to the nation, to the king, even though from their perspective, and truly, it was promulgating a false religion. Yet Daniel and his companions submitted to the ideas and the ways of their oppressors, at least to some measure. And the text before us this morning says that they even excelled in the language and the culture of the foreign nation, the pagan nation to which they were exiled. Verse 2 is very important here under the point of exile. It serves as an orientation to the entire chapter. Notice what it says. Adonai, that is God, gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Little words can be huge conveyors of meaning. Did you catch the verb? God gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. So the the use of this verb is important for reading the chapter as a whole. You see, the narrator wants you to recognize that God is sovereign over all the events in their lives. He's not forgotten his people both internally inside Israel and outside of Israel, God is still sovereign and in control. The Hebrews are his. They belong to him. They don't belong to Nebuchadnezzar. But nevertheless, Nebuchadnezzar is oppressive. Uh, We in our tradition like to emphasize God's sovereignty over earthly affairs. Let me show you how this is the case, both that God is sovereign over their earthly predicament, but also that Nebuchadnezzar is oppressive. You see, Nebuchadnezzar wants these Jews under his thumb, under his rule, under his subjugation, especially the gifted ones. And therefore, the commander of the nobles, at the injuncture of the king, now gives them new names. Daniel, which in Hebrew means God is my judge, is renamed Belshazzar, which is from the Akkadian language, it's the Babylonian spoke, meaning, may a god protect his life, or may lady goddess 
protect the king. Azariah, which means Yahweh is my help in Hebrew, becomes Abednego, probably a corruption of an Akkadian name, Abed-Nabu, meaning servant of Nabu. Why is this significant? Well, Nabu was the Babylonian god of wisdom, the son of Marduk, the patron of scribes. Hananiah, which means Yah, shortened form to Yahweh, has been gracious, Hebrew name, and Mishael, who is what God is, they become Shadrach and Meshach. Now, there's a lot of debate over what these latter two names mean, but Shadrach is probably another name for Marduk, who was the king of Babylon. And you'll remember, if you've had a chance to culturally enrich yourself with the creation epic of the Babylonians, Marduk reorganizes the cosmos, placing, not surprisingly, Babylon at the world's center. So Daniel and his companions are under a great deal of pressure. Pressure to assimilate. Pressure to accommodate. Let's be clear about this. Nebuchadnezzar is engaged in a program to reform these Jews theologically and socially. This comes out even in the details of the food that's prescribed to them, not merely in the changing of their names to Babylonian names. But notice the narrator goes on in this chapter to continue to use the Hebrew names, not the Babylonian names for the youth. Now, there's a lot of debate over the food that they've been assigned to eat. Some have thought that Daniel's alternative uh, diet uh, was for the purpose of not defiling himself in some kind of ritual sin, if you will. Others have said, and I quote, it's a declaration of separate identity, an affirmation of the unconquered dignity of the exiles. Oh, you'll not have us. Okay, that's another idea. But nevertheless, in the ancient Near East, partaking or abstaining of the king's food was fraught with political and religious loyalty overtones. Others have maintained Daniel's alternative diet was undertaken for ascetic purposes, that he might prepare himself through a more rigid diet for the revelation that would come to him later on, as we know from the stories. And some have even argued that Daniel is seeking solidarity with his countrymen. I'll reject the royal festal food, I'll reject the king's wine, and therefore I'll um, show solidarity with my fellow Israelites in exile. The particular word for the portion of food that's used, introduced to us in Daniel 1.5, is used only six times in the Old Testament, and they all occur in Daniel. And the most important thing of these various views that I've set before you here is to recognize that at each one of these occurrences of the word, the food belongs to the king, except one. Now, what's Daniel's motivation for requesting a change of diet? Was it moral? That Daniel doesn't want to defile himself because of some alleged uh, prescription or proscription in, in the Pentateuch, the law of Moses? I don't think so. Everything hinges on the interpretation of verse 8, if you look at your Bible. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. And therefore, he asked the chief, chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And the narrator states twice what Daniel's reason is for not wanting to defile himself. 
Now listen carefully because you won't pick this up from your English Bibles. The overseer had set out to rename Daniel and his friends as we saw. But the normal way of saying that in Hebrew, karashim, you might recognize or hear kara like Quran, to call out, to call out a name. That's not used. Rather, what's used in verse 7 is sim, to set a name for these Hebrew youths. And then in verse 8, notice what it says, that Daniel resolved himself. Literally, though, it uses the exact same verb that was just used in verse 7 with a kind of red flag. This isn't the normal way to rename somebody, but nevertheless, I'm going to use this verb, seem to do so. Daniel now says he set his heart to not defile himself and uses the same verb. That's not accidental. Daniel resolved, the ESV says, that he would not defile himself. But there's a pun going on between verse 7 and verse 8, and it's obvious when you read it in the original. And what is the alternative diet that Daniel requests? Well, in verse 12, Daniel requests vegetables. Actually, literally, seeds. Instead of the delicacies which belong to the king and show loyalty by eating at the same table with the king. There is no evidence in the text that the king's portion, which Daniel refused, was because it would have been in, uh, uh, motivated by uh, avoiding a violation of some kind of ritual regulation in God's law in the Pentateuch, even though the text might lead you to think that, at least initially. Rather, the link between chapter 1, verse 7, the overseers setting their names, and Daniel in response setting his jaw like flint not to defile himself, literally setting his heart, in response to the overseer's actions, which were, remember, a thoroughgoing attempt at cultural reformation, theological reformation. The point is, Daniel is drawing a line in the sand. He would not take the royal provision of food. He is making a counterclaim to the king's assertion of absolute authority over him and coercive authority of that, and his friends. Daniel's refusal to eat at the king's table essentially symbolizes a refusal at cultural accommodation. But this way of putting it only recognizes the negative side of the equation. Daniel would not accommodate to the king's provision. But this raises another question. Well, why could Daniel posture himself so courageously this way. Well, Daniel is full of puns, wordplay, and allusions. And the first textual clue we have here is in the phrase in chapter 1, verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion. Largely overlooked until recently by one of our grads, this seems to be an allusion to God's provision of food for the Israelites in the wilderness. Echoes of Exodus. Chapter 16, verse 4 of Exodus. And Yahweh told Moses, I am about ready to rain bread from heaven upon you. So let my people go out and gather a daily portion. Same phrase. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. You see, we have this link between Daniel chapter 1, verse 5, where there's deliberately used by the narrator a phrase for a portion of food, 
back to the Exodus event in chapter 16, verse 4, and then twice in chapter 1 of Daniel, the same verb for testing is used. It was used in the Exodus manna event. The manna was given as a test to God's people. So here Daniel proposes a reduction in diet so that it may act like a test as well. Verse 12, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables, literally seeds, to eat and water to drink. You can see then, people, the Lord had tested Israel with respect to water and food in the wilderness in the manna episode. The test hinged on the daily nature of the provision. You remember, how many times were they to go out? Once every day, twice on the sixth day, in honor of the Sabbath forthcoming. And so, too, daily they would go out, and they would demonstrate through that test their resolve to depend upon the Lord for everything good. God tested on other occasions, but this is the only test in the Old Testament by food and water at that period of time. And of significance is the fact that the actual word in verse 12 for vegetables is ambiguous, as I've already rendered It's really literally seeds, not vegetables. Daniel requested water and seeds. And interestingly, when we go back to the book of Exodus in the chapter on the provision of the manna, in chapter 1631, if you'll remember, the scriptures say, Now the house of Israel called its name manna, the bread from heaven, comma, it was like coriander seed. In short, Daniel didn't request bread from the overseer. He didn't request manna. His arranged test does include an evocation of Israel's test in the wilderness, centering on a daily provision of seed-like substance, something like manna and water. The issues of food and drink are front and center in our text this morning. But it's not only these dictional links, there's also thematic and structural links as well. You see, the need for basic sustenance of food and water confronted the Israelites when they emerged into the wilderness. After being delivered out of the iron furnace of Pharaoh's heavy slavery, so too in the exile, the Israelites are confronted in their exile with a food and water test after their social and geographical displacement. Daniel has demonstrated his ultimate dependence upon Yahweh, God. This reverse exodus, as Dr. Seifert calls it, of the exile, where they've been moved from freedom to slavery instead of from slavery to freedom, amplifies and showcases Daniel's robust faith and dependence and obedience on God. And what was the result? The text of Daniel 1 forges a link between food and knowledge. This is the same thing with the manna tradition. Daniel is making explicit what has already been taught in the manna tradition in Deuteronomy, because there, chapter 8, verse 3, we get a little glimpse into the ultimate purpose of the manna test. He humbled you, causing your hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers understood, in order to make you understand that human beings do not live on bread alone, 
Human beings, rather, live upon all that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. Likewise, in our chapter, verses 16 and 17, the food test and the water test give way almost seamlessly to new knowledge. So the steward took away their food and their wine they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables, literally seeds. And as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. The test continues to describe the favor that they found in the king's eyes. God is still present with his people, even in exile. So what about extradition? We looked at exile, banishment. We look at echoes from Exodus. Now we look at extradition. Let me explain. Exile should be defined as a temporary relocation outside the land of Israel. A temporary relocation. Diaspora is the word we use for a permanent relocation outside the land of Israel. Exile was the worst kind of curse for them. But the fact of the matter is, we are all exiled. We are all diaspora from our original homeland, which was the Garden of Eden. Unlike Israel, our exile is permanent. Israel would return to their land, at least for a time. We cannot return, though, to the Garden of Eden. That way is forever blocked, and therefore there's a need for extradition or extraction, if you will. Technically, you know what the word extradition means? And I quote, the legal surrender of an alleged criminal to another authority for trial. The legal surrender of an alleged criminal to another authority for trial. Extraction's easy enough for people to grasp. But see here, Daniel is ultimately a type of Christ. Daniel's life directs your gaze at your Savior Christ. You remember that types in Scripture demonstrate Old Testament events, institutions, and individuals are given in shadowy form ultimately to point forward to our true Savior. They look beyond themselves for their ultimate fulfillment in the interpretation of the things which they point forward to in technical terms, antitypes. So Old Testament types prefigured in shadowy form the things to come. Well, we've seen that often Scripture borrows the language and the imagery of the first exodus. You should have picked this up from the pastor's preaching in the gospel. And so, too, in Daniel 1, we see references back to the exodus tradition. But these all point forward to the need for another exodus, a greater exodus than the first one, one one that would far outstrip the first exodus. The prophets had already foretold this when they spoke of a future exodus to come. They declared that God would lead his people again out of bondage, not from Pharaoh here and his iron hand of slavery, but through the desert, away from Babylon, back into the restoration plan and the promised land. The next generation could look for a partial fulfillment of prophetic expectations. However, the restoration was not merely to reestablish the monarchy or the theocracy in the land of Judah. 
Why would you want to have a little Disney plot of geographical land and real estate over in the ancient Near East when you can have the whole world pulsed? Just saying. Daniel 1 must be understood in its canonical context. In other words, we're not done understanding Daniel 1 or any part of Scripture until we understand it in its whole context. And the Scriptures teach us that God is in control. And ultimately, he has brought a permanent end to your exile. The end of exile is completely resolved for Christians. Where? At the cross. Or more precisely, through our Lord's whole life and work as a human divine mediator, leading up to his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and finally his exaltation. Oh, it is true, we don't see the full coming in of the promises to Abraham as of yet. There's an interval that will only be resolved when Christ comes back in his second advent. But how can Christians still be under the curse of exile and sin in any way? You're not. There is this interval between Christ's exaltation and subjugation of all his enemies. Christ is not yet completed bringing in all his church and building his church. In other words, all his elect Christians, wherever they may be, in their own diaspora, wherever in the world, despite ethnicity, Christ is still building his church. But brothers and sisters, the bondage of sin, the curse of exile are resolved without remainder for Christians in Christ's work accomplished. There's been an extradition, the legal surrender of an alleged criminal to another authority for trial, (laughs) as if we were alleged criminals. We're all of us God-haters, without hope in the world. And yet the trial has been conducted, and you have been declared innocent We were sinners against God without hope in the world. And yet, that debt has been paid without without remainder, completely, sufficiently. If you're truly trusting in Christ alone and not your own works. As the scriptures say, when the fullness of time had come, Galatians 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. Praise God. In Daniel, by dependence upon the one true God, He could exercise such a resolve to resist compromise, to resist the pressure to uh, accommodate to the culture, a pagan culture at that, in which he was exiled. But how much more so, brothers and sisters, can we resist the pressures of the world round about us since Christ has put an end to our exile forever? He's brought about a final new exodus and far outstripped the first exodus. And he's given us a more generous profusion of his Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God alone. May he give us the strength, the courage, the grace 
to be ever dependent upon him in all life circumstances, especially when the world tries to shape us into its perverse mold. Let's pray.